Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Source Code, Badarayana's Vedanta Sutra. Our look at the Mimamsa school may not have persuaded you that Vedic ritual can really bring its promised fruits, but given the abundant intellectual harvest we've gathered in Jaimini and his successors, you're presumably convinced that a tradition devoted to the exegesis of sacred texts can at least be philosophically fruitful. Perhaps, though, you're the stubborn type. If so, we still have hope of getting you to see things our way, because we aren't yet done with Mimamsa in the broader sense. As we mentioned, Jaimini, Shabara, Kumarira, and Prabhakara are representatives of what is called Purva, or prior, Mimamsa, but it was Uttara, posterior Mimamsa, that gave rise to one of the most famous branches of Indian philosophy. Uttara Mimamsa is also called Vedanta, and like Mimamsa, it eventually subdivided into different groups with their own approaches. The most famous approach is that of the most famous Vedantin, the 8th century thinker Shankara. That approach is called non-dualist or Advaita Vedanta, a name you may well have come across before finding this podcast. We found that it was difficult to excavate the foundations of Purva Mimamsa without being guided and perhaps occasionally misled by the interpretation of the commentator Shabara. So it is with Shankara's understanding of Uttara Mimamsa, which from here on out we'll just call Vedanta. The power of Shankara's philosophy makes it tempting to equate Vedanta with that philosophy. But just as we tried to go back to Jaimini and understand his Mimamsa Sutra in its own right, so we now want to devote an episode to the founding text of Vedanta, which was composed in its current form several centuries before Shankara, likely in the 5th century AD. Predictably, this book is called the Vedanta Sutra, and known too as the Uttara Mimamsa Sutra. But it goes by several other names also. Its primary subject, as announced in its very first line, is Brahman. So naturally enough, it is sometimes called the Brahma Sutra. And because it speaks of the nature of a self that possesses a bodily form, Sharidaka, it has been called the Sharidaka Sutra. This confusing welter of titles for a single book could hardly be more appropriate. For the core mission of the Vedanta Sutra is to investigate a single source of all things, which presents itself in many guises. That source is, of course, Brahman. The sutra does not just argue that Brahman is indeed the source of all things, it also explores the relationship between our individual selves and this transcendent principle, it tells us how we can come to know Brahman, and it promises us liberation from the snares and karmic consequences of bodily existence if we attain this knowledge. Described in this way, the Vedanta Sutra may sound like a systematic work of philosophical cosmology, but if so, the system is not easy to extract. Like the sutra texts that stand at the origins of other philosophical traditions, the Vedanta Sutra at times seems almost to be written in code. If Shankara's authority looms over the text, this is in part because we need the help of Shankara and other commentators to understand it. Though the sutra form is to some extent to blame for the difficulty of the work, another reason is that the Vedanta Sutra is a philosophical treatise that doubles as a work of exegesis, devoted to the texts at the end of the Veda, hence the name Vedanta, namely the Upanishads. 
Actually, we should be more specific here. Texts honored with the name of Upanishads continued to be produced concurrently with and long after the composition of the Vedanta Sutra. We might even say that later Upanishads are themselves an expression of the Vedanta tradition. But the Vedanta Sutra is devoted to the interpretation of a more select group of early Upanishads, especially the Chandogya Upanishad, but also the Great Forest Upanishad and others. Thus, it refers to several of the Upanishadic passages we discussed earlier in this series, like the scenes of dialogue featuring Yajnavakya. Key passages like these came to be known as great sayings and to receive especially focused treatment from later Vedantins. The reason this makes the sutra difficult to read is that it rarely identifies the passages it is interpreting. For this, we need to know the Upanishads so well that even a single key word will be enough to tell us which text is at stake, or failing that, we need the help of the commentators. To give just one example of this very frequent feature of the text, there is a sutra that says simply, because of abiding and eating. The context shows that this is supposed to help convince us that Brahman holds up all things, but the remark remains incomprehensible until you realize that the sutra is alluding to a passage that describes two birds, one of which is eating while the other just sits quietly. The idea, then, is that the bird, who is eating, symbolizes the individual soul engaged in worldly action, while Brahman simply abides unchanging. This is a good example of the interpretive project that dominates the Vedanta Sutra. It reads the sacred texts as putting forward a single coherent doctrine centering on the concept of Brahman. The same goes for later Vedantins, except that for them, the Sutra itself, and for good measure the Bhagavad Gita, joined the Upanishads as fundamental sources of wisdom and insight into the nature of Brahman. Thus, Shankara commented on the Gita, as well as the Vedanta Sutra and several early Upanishads. This Brahman-centric approach was controversial, and rejected by other Brahmanical schools. When the Vedanta Sutra confronts and refutes the teachings of those schools, it typically concentrates on showing that the Vedanta way of looking at things is better grounded in sacred texts. This is not a sign of faith triumphing over reason, rather it is a sign that the opponents being targeted are themselves committed to the truth of the Upanishads. Exegesis is the ground on which the Sutra chooses to wage its philosophical battles. Although the Vedanta Sutra shares the interpretive aims of the Mimamsa Sutra, it is not just a second installment of that Sutra that moves on to looking at the Upanishads. This can best be illustrated by talking about the men who are credited with writing the two Sutras. The Mimamsa Sutra was supposedly written, or at least compiled, by Jaimini, but in fact he is mentioned there in the third person. The same happens in the Vedanta Sutra, which names and reports the ideas of its own putative author, whose name is Bhadarayana. At several points, Bhadarayana's ideas are contrasted to those of Jaimini. In the Mimamsa Sutra, it's Jaimini who usually gets the last decisive word in any given debate. Here in the Vedanta Sutra, it is instead Bhadarayana, whose view is allowed to triumph over those of Jaimini and other interpreters. This, presumably, is why the later tradition credits Bharadayana with having authored the text. But it might be safer to use the technical terms of sutra literature and say that Jaimini's opinion is treated as an initial or prima facie view, the Purva Paksha, only to be corrected by the more adequate view, Siddhanta, of Bharadayana. The authoritative position, if not authorship, of Bharadayana has important consequences for the Vedanta Sutra. Where Jaimini placed all his focus on Vedic ritual, 
Bhararayana is more interested in the prospect of liberation through the knowledge of Brahman. At one point we are told that a person with such knowledge can dispense with such things as lighting ritual fires. In keeping with this, Bhararayana is less weighted than Jaimini to the life of the householder and tends to emphasize the superiority of the ascetic life led by renouncers. The knowledge of Brahman imparted in the Upanishads is valued for its own sake, and not, as Jaimini would have it, as a supplement that helps us grasp the purpose of ritual. While this is the most significant disagreement between the two, there are several others. Bhararayana thinks that even the gods can achieve liberation by knowing Brahman, whereas Jaimini restricts this to humans and even denies the existence of gods. One of the core doctrines of Mimamsa is that the Veda had no origin but has always existed, and though this idea can be found in the Vedanta Sutra, so also can the idea that the Veda has its source in Brahman. It's typical of the age of the sutra that the Vedanta theory is developed through this sort of dialectical argument. Bhadarayana, or whoever was ultimately responsible for the Vedanta sutra as we now read it, constantly raises objections against himself and goes on to refute those objections. Some of the most important objections have to do with the nature of Brahman as a cause. How can we believe that all things were produced by Brahman, given that Brahman is transcendent above those things? It seems impossible that a cause could give rise to things that are utterly unlike it. To this, Bharayana replies simply that such things are known to happen. He doesn't condescend to provide an example, but the commentators suggest what he may have in mind. Shankara's remark on this sutra mentions cases where the living can emerge from the dead, as when a scorpion is spontaneously generated from a pile of manure, and conversely, where something inanimate comes from what is living, as when we grow hair and fingernails. But why, the objector persists, would Brahman even bother to produce the world? For no real reason, suggests Bharatayana, it is out of mere sport or play that Brahman does so. But wouldn't Brahman have had good reason not to cause the world as we see it? After all, it is full of suffering and unjust inequality. True, concedes Bharatayana, but this is not the fault of Brahman. All suffering is a punishment for wicked deeds which may have been committed in past lives. Since the cycle of rebirth has been going on endlessly, any particular case of suffering can always be referred back to earlier actions that justify this suffering. This, notice, is a point of agreement between Mimamsa and Vedanta. Both accept that the world has always existed much as it does now, even if Bharatayana insists that this eternal world has a source in Brahman, whereas this notion is foreign to Jaimini. The world caused by Brahman may be permanent, but it does have a kind of conceptual sequence. Not coincidentally, this sequence is going to remind you of things we saw in the Upanishads. You might remember that when Yajnalvikya was challenged by his female interlocutor Gargi to provide the fundamental principle upon which all things are woven, he eventually satisfied her by saying that this principle might be space. Naturally, Bharatayana accepts this idea and infers that space is the very first effect of Brahman, or at another point, that space is even identical to Brahman. From space emerge other principles, which will probably remind you of something else, the elements of ancient Greek cosmology. Here we get the sequence air, fire, water, and earth, produced one after another with Brahman as their ultimate source. 
they will eventually return to Brahman, dissolving into it in the reverse order of their generation when the world cycle finally ends. From this passage, we can see that the universe is like an effective stand-up comedian, it has great material. The best material possible, in fact, namely Brahman itself, which is both the moving cause that gives rise to all things, and in some way the stuff out of which things are made. As long as we're in the mood to refer to Greek philosophy, we could take a leaf from Aristotle and say that Brahman is both the efficient and material cause of the world. Both ideas, Bararayana would say, are captured in the dictum that Brahman is the support of heaven, earth, and all other things. Though it takes on the forms of other things, Brahman is in itself formless. It is characterized in various ways throughout the Upanishads, something freely admitted in the Vedanta Sutra. But many of these characterizations are metaphors, a favorite one being that Brahman is like the sun or a single light whose rays fall on and illuminate many things. The sacred text may occasionally be misleading in its attempt to describe Brahman in a way we can appreciate, as when it suggests that Brahman has size. In fact, this is not so, because nothing other than it exists, so it is everywhere, pervading all things, rather than occupying any particular dimensions. All of which brings us to a fine example of something we mentioned when we first started describing the age of the sutra, namely that the so-called orthodox Hindu schools in fact entered into heated disputes with one another. Pararayana's insistence that Brahman is the material cause of all things brings him into direct conflict with the Samkhya school, which is mentioned explicitly and made the target of a sustained critique. We'll be looking at Samkhya later, of course. For now, all we need to tell you is that this school sees the world as evolving naturally from an underlying material stuff called Pradhana. Though Samkhya too positions itself within the Brahmanical tradition, on this score it would seem to be diametrically opposed to Vedanta. Far from recognizing an intelligent, divine creator mind that manifests itself as all things, Samkhya has all things being generated from Pradhana, an unintelligent stuff. Against that notion, Bararayana invokes that most familiar proof of a guiding intelligence in the universe, its striking, apparently providential order. He appeals not so much to a stock example as a livestock example. Trying to get the world we see out of Pradhana without the intervention of Brahman would be like trying to get milk out of grass without the involvement of a living cause, namely a cow. But as we mentioned earlier, this dispute with the rival school is not only a philosophical one. Bararayana wants us to see not just that the Samkhya theory makes no sense, but that it cannot make sense of key Upanishadic texts. This emerges especially clearly in the tradition of commentary on the Vedanta Sutra, with Shankara delving into extensive exegesis of the background passages to show that the Samkhya school isn't understanding those passages properly. Of course, the Vedanta Sutra sets its face against more radical forms of materialism and naturalism, too. Not only do the Vedas clearly reject such attitudes, but if we were to rely on sensation and material causes, it's clear that we could never attain the goal of liberation that is so dear to Bharatayana. Materialist explanations fail for the world as a whole, and also for the human individual. The individual self cannot be reduced to the body, but is in fact independent of the body. And here we come to what may be the single most famous teaching of the Vedanta Sutra, famous in part because it plays such a central role in Shankara's version of Vedanta. 
This is the idea that Brahman has a very intimate relationship to the individual self. What sort of relationship exactly? Well, that's not an easy question. Shankara's school of Advaita Vedanta insists that nothing is real apart from Brahman. This, of course, includes every individual self. So the apparent fact that each of us is distinct from other things and from the ground of all existence is actually an illusion. Shankara can draw on compelling evidence in the Vedanta Sutra to support this interpretation. We find Bhadarayana suggesting that there is ultimately no difference between Brahman as cause and the things that it creates. When it comes to the self, meanwhile, he tells us that Brahman is identical with our vital breath and instructs us to grasp Brahman by meditating on it as being our own self. Other passages, though, seem to draw a firm distinction between the individual self and the highest self that is Brahman. We can glimpse here signs of a debate that was in fact already raging before the time of the writing of the Vedanta Sutra. We know, in part thanks to the sutra itself, that earlier scholars prepared the way for Bhadarayana by commenting on the Upanishads and that they had different ideas about the self and its relation to Brahman. For instance, it was suggested that Brahman is simply the material constituent for the individual self, or that the individual self is distinct from Brahman, but becomes identical to Brahman once it is liberated from the body. Perhaps the best we can conclude, on the basis of the Vedanta Sutra itself, is that the relation between Brahman and individual self is held in tension between sheer identity and difference. One's impression depends to some extent on which passage one is reading, while certain passages want to have it both ways, as when we are told that Brahman relates to individual selves like a snake to its coils. As we move ahead to the development of Vedanta, though, we'll see someone who definitely doesn't want to have it both ways. The podcast is going on a short summer break now, but in September it will return, with only one way forward, to look at the non-dualism of Shankara and Advaita Vedanta, here on The History of Philosophy in India. Allah,